0: Welcome to the People's Historians podcast from the Zen Education Project, coordinated by Teaching for Change and Rethinking Schools. In this episode from our series on Teach the Black Freedom Struggle, our host, Jesse Hagopian, a high school teacher and Rethinking Schools editor, facilitates a conversation between authors Jeff Chang and Dave Davy D. Cook on their new young adult version of Can't Stop, Won't Stop, A Hip Hop History. They catalog hip hop's beginnings, its early cross-regional influences, and the politics of abandonment that the music emerged from. Jesse starts by introducing Jeff Chang.
1: Jeff Chang has written extensively on culture, politics, arts, and music. His books include the adult edition of "Can't Stop, Won't Stop," "Who We Be," and "We Gonna Be All Right." Recommend them all. Um.
2: Basically, you know, we we, we, um, we wanted to try to, to, to offer this as a resource, especially to you all. Um, you know, you're our folks. Uh, you're the folks who who continue this, keep the stories moving. And, you know, for us, um, it's just a big honor to be able to talk uh, about the work uh, to you all. Um can't Stop, Won't Stop really began as a project uh, that simultaneously Dave and I were doing books you know, back in the early 2000s, trying to document you know, um, this emergence or this iteration, we could say, of black, the black freedom culture. Um, and you know, the, the black freedom culture kind of stemming from uh, the black freedom struggle. Uh, and so, you know, for us, it was really key to be able to tell these stories of uh, these young black kids in the Bronx uh, and New York City uh, in black neighborhoods um, in the 1960s and the 1970s, who are able to come together, despite being abandoned uh, by everyone virtually right by government by their own teachers by the system and um, to forge their own way of being able to express themselves, and to continue to pass on the movements, uh, the rhythms, the dance, the music, um, and the stories, right, uh, and the visual art of of um, of their culture and their their folks, right. That's right. Um, and so, you know, the 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 story begins really in the in the nineteen sixties against. The backdrop of the politics of abandonment and continues on, you know, through um, somebody here mentioned, I think it was Mr. Fuentes, talked about Los Angeles. We, we moved the story to the West Coast to talk about the politics of containment that began to start taking shape in the 1980s and the 1990s. Um, and that was where the original book left off. And so in this book, we take it all the way up to uh, last year, to 2020 and the uprisings around the murder of George Floyd, uh, as well as uh, the impact of the pandemic and the economic crisis on communities of color. Um, but it's really important, I think, to be able to tell this story over and again, because it's it's simply um, an iteration of how uh, the Black Freedom Movement has led us to be able to uh, understand how unfulfilled the promise of American democracy is, um, and the just the power of expression. Um, you know, uh, hip hop is black music. Hip hop is American music. Hip hop is uh, global music now. It's it's the voice of young people who are oppressed all around the world, um, and many more uh, than than just that type of group. So, um, we think it's the greatest story ever told, and that's what we wanted to try to capture.
0: Davy D joins the conversation.
3: You know, building off of Jeff, first, let me say what's up to all the teachers there. You know, my wife um is a school teacher for many, many years, and it's God's work, you know. So I thought I was gonna have an easy night off, but all the teachers <laughs> are here. So I'm like, she's not here, but I'm oh now she's pulling up, so now I gotta really be on my P's and Q's. So <laughs> she's like, you better not embarrass me. <laughs> So big shout out to all the teachers for real. Um, I see the work that she puts in, and uh, I can appreciate that, especially having two young kids myself who are you know going through the system. Um, building off of what Jeff said, you know, two things that come to mind. One, when we talk about the black freedom struggle, we should be clear you know, there's many iterations of the black freedom struggle. There's the civil rights movement, there's the Panthers, there's, you know, there's SNCC, there's all these different things. And for me, it's more or less coming up in the Bronx in the seventies, it's the black power movement, because, you know, even though the civil rights movement, you know, the whole Dr. King motive was very powerful. There was also a rejection from that as well. You know, hip hop was an embarrassment to many of those folks and the nurturing that came, came initially from people that had those connections, if not directly involved with the Panthers, the nation of Islam. So that, it, that iteration of the black freedom struggle, where you're looking at the, the people who are left out of the doors that were opened. And I think that gets described in the reaction to these um, politics of abandonment, you know, that uh, folks who are in the crosshairs of that you know, whether it's through Nixon's policies or, you know, the mayor at the time in New York or J. Edgar Hoover and the larger scope of things, these folks are reacting to the militancy and the Black power uh, struggle that was awakening a lot of people and, and saying, we're not, not, not only we're not going to turn the other cheek, we're going to have a politic that challenges the system. So hip hop comes out of that, that kernel. And I think we need to look at that. The other thing is that we start off and we focus in the Bronx, but the good thing about this book and what Jeff had started off when he moved the story to the West Coast was that we try to look at this and understand that New York had a unique quote unquote, unique response to it. But that response is found in almost every place where black folks are at, whether you're in Oakland where I'm at, whether you're in LA, whether you're in Chicago, whether you're anywhere you wanna go, So while we have hip hop in New York, you go to DC, they're doing go-go. You know, you go to Chicago, they're doing house. You go down South, they have a whole other song and dance and oral tradition as being manifested. And what you have in common with all these expressions is that people were being left out, being discarded, being contained in some areas or being abandoned in others. And what people wanted to do was tell their story be seen, be heard, be acknowledged. And they found ways to do it. New York just happened to be a big jump off that eventually interacts with other jump offs in other cities. And we have these, you know, uh, this beautiful flourishing of hip hop with all these different places, I think adding to uh, this this culture and giving their unique expressions. But the bottom line is that people were just left out and folks were gonna find a way to make a way.
1: (laughs) That's right. And and here we are. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you all so much for that grounding us in where this this music came from and and the political and cultural moment. I wanna just jump ahead and say that hip hop has been as much a part of why I became a radical, why I became an educator, um, as anything else, you know, I can remember uh, so many, mo- you know, listening to KRS-One, uh, or you know, I think a moment that's always going to stand out is when I was in the the CD store and found Dead Prez's album "Let's Get Free," and just the cover, I just knew I had to I had to buy it and figure out what was going on with this, and you know. The songs like It's Bigger Than Hip Hop or They Schools uh, just like almost knocked me down and just connected so much with my experience. You know, they start that that song They Schools off saying the same people who control the school system, control the prison system and the whole social system ever since slavery. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And, you know, it just got me really thinking more about the problems of education in terms of systemic and institutional racism, rather than the individual teachers I had that were a problem. Right. And so I wonder if you can talk about the ways that hip hop has contributed um, to the Black Lives Matter movement and the importance of young people learning about the politics of hip hop.
2: The the really uh, amazing thing about this particular um, edition for us was you know that we we had um, the the original book had come out in two thousand and five, and it ended in two thousand. And um, my editor uh, Monique Patterson, who um, just gave us so much support and love, was like, "It's time to take it to a new generation." Um, and so we started writing this about three years ago, uh, but and we had to turn it in. It was it was due at the end of twenty nineteen things went a little bit long and we, yeah. and we said, Hey, you know what, actually we, we can't leave out the stuff that's going on right now. And she totally uh, agreed. And she did, she sort of moved heaven and earth to be able to give us like, you know, some more time to be able to, 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 to do it. And so we were able to capture um, again uh, this new sort of uprising, upwelling of, of this spirit of change. Right. And, um, that we saw happening during the summer months um, and you know so hip-hop of course has been the soundtrack to all of that and what we've seen is is that there's been this really interesting discursive kind of um, dialectic between what's been happening in the streets and what's been happening with the art right and we're, so we're in a moment right now that feels like uh, uh, just, just another renaissance of powerful um, music powerful art powerful filmmaking powerful shorts that are being done um, powerful writing that's been done um, there's just so much and i'm sure all of you all as teachers have been oh. going gosh i've, I've not, it's like you know, there's so much to reach into so much to, to present to folks uh, in the YA field, right? Um, all kinds of amazing authors from Jackie Woodson to Jason Reynolds, everybody that we can think of even Kendi's book uh, coming out as well. Um, and so it's been um, a really powerful kind of time. Uh, you know, what a time to be alive as the kids say, right? Um, for us to be able to kind of talk about all this kind of work and see the ways in which it's manifesting um, in, in young people's uh, thinking and activism um, and just learning.
3: You know, one thing that, one thing that was going on um, in the 70s as you started to have a clampdown on these freedom movements, there was a shift in terms of who got the mic and who was listened to And what you saw was very systematically leaders were either executed, jailed or silenced. Um, Platforms that they had open uh, were unavailable. And for a period of time, at least for my generation, moving up athletes and artists and entertainers became the people with big microphones. So a lot of our hopes and desires and, and even histories came through artists. And so that's important to note that, you know, celebrity culture was being born it wasn't completely controlled, or maybe it was controlled in many areas because people like h Rap Brown, aka Jamil Alamine, talked about that, you know, as well as others said that you know, Black entertainers were working on behalf of the system. But hip-hop was one of these things that people didn't see coming. And so for a period of time, for a few generations of people in the middle of the crack epidemic, it was hip-hop artists with a certain amount of politic, and a certain amount of of intentionality, keyword intentionality, meaning that their politic and their willingness to deliver information was not by accident. We're talking about clandestine meetings that people had at places like the Latin Quarter where they were like, this is what we're gonna do when we get these microphones. This is what we're gonna do on these platforms. Uh, There were people that were, Saying, I will dedicate a song. I will make sure that I'm going to speak truth to power because nobody else has the mic. And so you had that sort of focus like, what is Public Enemy saying? What's Big Daddy Kane saying? What is Queen Latifah saying? And that went on for quite a time, quite a bit of time. As we move into the Black Lives Matter era, you now have people who only grew up on hip hop, they don't know a day without it for people that are a certain age. And it's kind of shifted now. Now we're not necessarily looking for the artists to provide the education because there's a lot of people that can speak for themselves, have platforms. And I think now you see the artists kind of take the cues from the leaders, which is what it should have been from Jump Street versus the other way around. You know, the industry, once they realized the influence of artists, really wanted to have us make those artists things that people that we followed, you know, uh, once they could control the platforms and once they could get people acclimated to tuning into the hot 97s and the Mm -hmm. Power 106s and the KMLs, then they could give them information. But the information was designed to make us consumers, right? Right. And to keep us in a certain type of mindset. But now you have a lot of (laughs) other people that broke out of that matrix and you see it now reflected in the music. Um, If you see artists speaking out uh, say about uh, the Fergusons and the uprisings. It's because they're seeing what's going on in the streets and now they have to reflect that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, little baby's That's not right. leading the, the charge. <laughs> little baby's looking at what's going on in the streets and he's saying, I better, you know, pen some lyrics, right? Um, the ice cubes and everybody else, mm-hmm. I think, have had to take leaders, you know, leadership from what has been happening. The Mm -hmm. next step that I think will have to show up will be how we uh, take all these collective resources and, and create something that is even more dynamic. And I'll close with this. We started to see a little bit of this where artists fell back and let leaders take the role. And I'll point to the Million Youth March as one example of that. Where Master P was like, they're trying to shut it down. You need money for permits, I'll write the check. I don't need to speak. I'm a fundness. That's in the method of Harry Belafonte. As you know, Harry Belafonte since then got on a lot of artists' domes for not doing more. And many mm-hmm. of those folks fell back and started writing checks. You all are in jail, I'll bail you out. You know, you all need some money to travel, we'll make sure you're there. So artists found, I think, a comfortable role so that a lot of activists can do what they need to do and not get caught up in the contradictions that we often uh, pointed out of artists. How can you say fight the power, but you're doing a song about, you know, sex Mm -hmm. or something like that. Well, you know what, we don't, you don't need to know why I'm doing the song. The money from that is funding other people. And I think that's an important change that is happening. Um, Where Nipsey Hussle and others were going, they were saying, let's get athletes, let's get artists, let's get business people in the community and see if we can buy them all. See if we can buy a store. Let's see if we can do those things. Those are things that were starting to happen. I mean, you could see that where we're at. You can see that in other places. And it might not be for prime time, but I think that's the mindset of people right now. We don't need the artist to necessarily lead, but to play a very significant role in the overall freedom struggle.
1: Oh, appreciate that. No doubt. It's amazing to see that dialectical relationship between the struggle and, and the art and the streets and, and the hip hop artists um, that is just making some synergy right now and pushing things forward. Um I want to ask y'all about the female MCs from Shaw Rock to the Mercedes ladies to Queen Latifah to Salt and Pepper to Lauren Hill to Cardi B and Megan the Stallion, who are just going so hard today. Women and b-girls have really been part of this music from the very beginning, and yet they have also faced intense marginalization and sexism uh, from the industry. And I was hoping you could talk about the challenges that women have endured and the ways they have shaped the music and culture um, and the broader uh, problems of the hip hop industry.
3: One of the things we didn't want to do in this book was just have a token session where we go, this is the women, you know, Queen Latifah, MC Light, Foxy Brown, or whoever, and move on. Um, it would have been an accurate. And going back to what I said earlier about we got to reflect, we are now charged with reflecting what's going on in the community. So when I look out my window, the leaders that I see, whether they're the Cat Brooks or the Alicia Garza's, or, you know, I can go on and on. It's women that are leading these movements. Um, And so there's an accountability factor. Jeff and I are married with strong women in our lives. So we're not walking in the door coming up uh, short, you know, being like, how did you just write only one chapter when you know better, right? Mm -hmm. I have a daughter, you know, so you want to make sure that she has a blueprint, a robust blueprint to look at. And lastly, there's the truth. And the truth of the matter is that women were there from day one, uh, whether it was Cool Herc Sister organizing the party and coming up with the idea and, you know, and being, you know, arguably the first entrepreneur in this thing called hip-hop, all the way up to what we see today. Um, there's instant after instant where we can see that women have played key roles, whether it's on the label side, whether it's on the artistic side, whether it's just in making sure that this culture in this movement has been able to thrive and too many to name and so throughout the book we were very intentional about making sure that um in our story, telling of the story that we include the sisters that were involved you know from start to finish and and yeah there is a section on women but I think when you read the book you see that the presence is there throughout and that was important and very intentional and you know and leaves us a lot of room to build on because we couldn't tell the full story
2: right and i i noticed there was a, a a question in the chat about other resources and we just want to recommend a couple of books or a few books actually um i think the the classic classic if you can get it used is a book called vibe hip-hop divas mm-hmm. um just a just a classic history uh so well done um, some of the most amazing writers, uh, our friends, our our shiros. Um, I would also recommend Kathy Iandoli's book "God Save the Queens," which came out last year. Uh, fantastic history of of women in hip hop. And, and uh, if you want a book that you can just sort of uh, just inspire folks with, you should check you should check out Clover Hope's "The Motherload," which uh, is beautifully illustrated and has a bunch of um, profiles of, of a number of different artists. Uh, just those three books we would highly, highly I, recommend.
3: I would just also add Joan Morgan's Chicken Heads, Come Home the Roost, and her yeah, new Joan, one that she did with uh, Joan Morgan, on, yeah, Joan is yeah, the best. On, on Lauren yeah. Hill, and I'll plug myself, you know, if you go online and you type out 500 female MCs, everybody should know, um, that's a great resource, and it came out of The fact that we were dealing with promoters that were having these showcases with like 50 artists on the the bill and no women. And when we talked to them, they were like, well, you know, ain't nobody want to check out any women. And so um, I got together with a number of, uh, you know, uh, women friends, you know, Mad Lines to Aisha Fukushima. I mean, we, we can go on and on. And we just put together this robust list so that there would be no excuse it had links to everybody. You, <laughs> and, you know, you like, it, it went from all around the world. So if you was in Timbuktu you know, <laughs> right and you on. go, I don't know, there's no women. It's like, no, nah, here's about a hundred right here. So that was oh, something oh. that, that we used as a resource so that people could not come up with the excuse. And with the six, 600 and some odd people, I stopped keeping track of the list maybe two years ago. So there's a lot more <laughs> to yeah. add to it, but it, it, it's it's a good jump off for anybody who's teaching and wants to, you know, go. I need you to go find some folks to build around. That's, uh, it, it's a resource for
1: y'all. I love it. I love it. Um, Hip hop has been such an important part of my classroom. My, my opening unit about identity. Um, I often play a song by Big Daddy Kane called Who Am I? And uh, in it, you know he raps I was born a black man from the motherland speaking the language today most people don't understand where no one could bother me because I had freedom justice and equality but then one day it was taken away right and we, we use that line to talk about how do we define where we're from and I was I just want educators to understand how they can use hip-hop in the classroom as a source of knowledge that is more legitimate than the textbook and more, much more engaging, while also being sensitive to the fact that teachers can sometimes bring in hip hop in performative ways that don't really engage students in the criticality
0: of the music. Toward the end of their presentation, Chang and Davey D analyze a song by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five titled Freedom. The song represents the celebration and joy that resonates in hip hop from the beginning of the music, providing contrast to some of the early music's more political tracks, like The Message.
2: What I wanted to do was, uh, or what we wanted to do is to try to select two songs, um, kind of going back to the beginning of recorded hip hop. So we pulled out Grandmaster Flash's The Message, which I think most everybody here has probably heard a lot, we probably don't need to play that. Um, another track that you might not have known about is called Freedom. Um, and the beauty of playing these two tracks back to back is to kind of understand how hip hop represents the range of different types of voices um, in the community. Freedom is a track that is, um, it's really just about getting on the dance floor and being free. Um, and, but it's, you know, you could take it as a metaphor, for for a larger sense of of feeling you know that that sense of release uh that you that you you might have um and that's like really what fury the furious five did um they used to get up on stage and pass the mic and rock the microphone the message was actually a track that was done um in response to the reagan recession of 1982 um that really displaced Uh, a lot of folks left a lot of folks in the black community, unemployed in communities of color, unemployed, um, hit communities of color, as you can imagine much, much harder than it hit white communities. um, The beginning of Reaganomics and the message was a track that at first they said, we don't wanna do this. Grandmaster Flash said, I'm not gonna do this song because that's not what our folks come to the clubs to hear. Um, But ultimately, it's the song that got him into the rock and roll hall of fame. It's the song that um, illustrated the power of hip hop uh, to be able to express how young people are feeling at any given moment in their communities. Um, and And so we wanted to give people those two songs, freedom and the message as a way to show within one, you know, group within one album, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's, all of these different ranges of, of voices. And it's not that one is bigger or stronger than the other. It's that all of them mm-hmm. uh, are being heard. And right let, me just
3: shout, let me just shout out on um, the late Ed Fletcher, Duke Booty, Duke who Booty. wrote the song. He was a teacher. A teacher. Yeah. You need to know he was, teacher he was a teacher that wrote it. Mm-hmm. And then Melly Mel already had the rhyme, you know, child is born with no state of mind. He had already had that rhyme for another you know, routine and he added it to it. But Duke Booty was looking at the tea leaves and said, we need to use this platform. And and so it was one of your fellow educators that right came on. up with that song. So um, essentially, yeah, t- I,
1: I think we have it queued up and we mm-hmm. probably should just play a quick clip because we got to break into these groups.
3: Okay. Um,
1: just And so, yeah. So we'll just start from the beginning and just play a little, just give you a little sample and people are going to have to listen to both these cuts back to back on your, on your own, or maybe when we're done with the session. All right, here we go. Somebody, somebody, if you want to party, say party.
0: The gist won't end, so you better get ready
3: think it would be great to look at the most recent song titled freedom and it's by dj free leonard with Razkaz, and they're mm. talking about the american indian struggle with mm. black folks and so you want to hear something that is historically based as Razkaz writes about um the indians the native american struggle wow. and leonard peltier and to hear those two you know one an artist one an mc and one a poet Um, If you want to kind of build off of where Flash is at in a recent iteration, I think you all will find that fascinating and historically accurate. DJ Freeland is the name of the artist.
1: Man, I missed that track, so I'm going to have to check that out myself. So I'll start off with a question and then we'll see if there are other questions that come up um, from from the group's. But let me begin by talking about how conservatives have long waged a culture war against hip-hop. You know, um, Kendrick Lamar quotes Fox News reporter Geraldo Rivera on his album, Damn. That was just such a brilliant move to, uh, to go right after him like that. Uh, Geraldo says... "Quote: Hip hop has done more damage to the African American community than racism. It's just like what? Then all of racism, really? Like, like slavery, Jim Crow, redlining. I mean, an incredible statement. But what what really gets me is just the way that that liberals also really haven't um, done much better. You know, they they decry." Uh, hip-hop as just full of violence, a bad influence for our for our kids. And you all write um, in, in the book, quote, the mainstream media has taken notice of hip-hop, but sometimes for the wrong reasons. Violence was also on the rise in rock concerts, but the media had a new reason to fix blame on use of color and call for rap show uh, bans spread. So I was hoping you could talk about Um, What scares the establishment in this country about hip hop? And what is the relationship of hip hop and violence, right? Including the way it exposes state violence in the lyrics. Um, Yeah, so if you could talk about that.
3: Uh, I'll hit that first. Um, One, the attack on hip hop needs to be contextualized. It's an attack on black people. It's an attack on people of color in general, Um, we don't have to be doing hip hop, we could be doing protesting the police and guess who's being attacked and accused of being violent and all the things, BLM, right? Um, When I was, you know, a a student during the anti-apartheid movement, right? Had had nothing to do with hip hop. Guess who is depicted as violent, you know, uncouth, problematic, all these different things. It was the people that were challenging power structures. So I think when we talk about violence on hip hop, we can't separate it from the larger violence, I mean, the larger attacks that are levied on our communities, because we are challenging the system. And I think, you know, the the reason that it's important to look at the book, the way it was written, in terms of how Jeff lays out the politics of containment and abandonment, because those are part of those attacks and it has nothing to do with music. It has to do with folks that are trying to escape uh, a a position that is very profitable for folks who have a lot of power. I'll close by saying Black pathology, Black death, Black dysfunctionality is is a multi-billion dollar a year business. You have Colin Kaepernick in the back. Colin Kaepernick has nothing to do with hip hop, but he was attacked for the same reasons, you know, with the same people in the same manner. And gotcha. so we have to kind of look at it that way. And then lastly, to your point about the liberals, their response to the Collins, to BLM, to, you know, the black power movement and even the civil rights movement, because Dr. King writes about it was weak back then it's weak now. And so what we're talking about are people who still have a problem in either recognizing our collective humanity and definitely have a problem with our leadership and recognizing our leadership skills and 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 prowess so i don't give too much uh uh to the conservatives at this point you know because when we're fighting the power we're here to knock them out and keep it moving but bill o'reilly and those type of people they're distractions from the politicians who are like in florida and texas and maybe even in california that are passing policies go after them and not the personalities there you go yeah
2: i'll take the the question in a little bit of a different direction. Um, one of the big themes for us in this book is the dialectic between creativity and violence, um, the creativity and state violence, creativity and uh, and violence in the community as well, um, among young people, among um, young people of color, um, and you know what what we try to do actually is to is to talk about the organizing that happens within the communities amongst young people, solely almost, to be able to confront the violence that's happening around them and to be able to uh, put together um, some sort of a understanding of the real enemy that they're up against. And so what happens in, in the history that we're documenting, over and over again is that young people uh, are segregated, are pushed into extenuating, like deep extenuating circumstances, are pushed into poverty um, and that state violence that's enacted upon them. And then they in turn enact violence upon each other, but that they've figured out at points, different points in history over and again, how to get it together, right? How to come together, forge peace and point their attention towards the real enemy. Uh, And so there was a gang peace treaty in 1971 that literally led directly to the the foundations of the hip hop movement in the Bronx. Um, And then it happens again in 1992, uh, basically a couple of days before the uprisings jump off in Los Angeles. There's this massive gang peace treaty that then spreads across the country. And that's what they're afraid of. Right want to talk about Nipsey Hussle, when Nipsey Hussle is shot in the streets, this in turn as well leads to a national gang peace movement. And out of that is this explosion of creativity that happens each time. Um, And the finger uh, gets pointed, not at each other, but at the real um, problems, the real source of the issues. And that's what uh, power, right? The power of capitalism the power of the government has been turned on young people uh every time that that's happened right we see uh after the gang peace treaty in the bronx uh, a shift towards um, increased policing against young people of color and that leads us into 1992 where the war on youth is accelerated after 1992 Uh, and in this current moment we could talk about what's happening right now as well uh, so that's the thing that we wanted to kind of point out. We do it through narrative, um, but right here we're kind of trying to we're, we're showing you our cards, basically um, what we're trying to what the, the stories that we think it's
3: really important to be able to tell in retail. It's an age-old story, but America is profitable when it has a permanent underclass, and when people try to escape being a part of that, it becomes a problem not just for the economic well-being of certain people, but sadly. And this is where your point about the liberals come in. It's how people identify themselves. I identify myself with you being less than me. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. And, you know, yeah. so the resistance comes when I don't give a damn about what you think. That becomes a problem. And I think very sincerely, I don't give a damn what people think when it comes to that sort of situation. And I think many of the artists over, the, over time had said, I don't give a damn. I don't, you know, I'm not even thinking about you go back to the Bill O'Reilly show where Cameron and Dame Dash were talking. Bill O'Reilly was so mad because they weren't paying him no attention. Like, dude, <laughs> I got just as much money as you and we don't care. <laughs> and when you do that, folks who are used to seeing themselves as superior, realize that they're not, it mm. becomes a problem. And so I'm here for that problem. I'm here to be as arrogant and as uh, what did we used to call it back in the days? As uppity as I possibly can, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, that's what we do. And that's what hip hop has done. And, you know, more power to it. Make them feel uncomfortable until they can go away because
1: we're not leaving, so. Right on, right on. And Jeff, you talked about the how hip hop emerged from a gang truce and, and some of that history and, and even, um, you know, the, the anti Violence programs that that Nipsey was working on in L.A. and um, you know that's an incredible story and what a loss um, him being shot down was and I want to thank you for for talking about his work because Nipsey Hustle was a cousin on on my dad's side and I, my dad's here um, mm-hmm. with, uh, as well um, so that's good to see you here Gerald. Appreciate you being here. Um, you know, unfortunately, I never got to meet Nipsey. But even after all he did for the community and all his outspokenness against violence, he was shot down in front of his marathon store. And his death was just so shocking. I mean, my dad was at the, the funeral and it, just saying it was so moving. Um, and it was so devastating, not only for my family, but for you know, many thousands of people all over the world uh, who mourned his death. So I was hoping you could talk more about his contribution to hip hop and his legacy.
2: I'm going to, so I got to shout Dave out on this because Dave was one of the first, very, very first people to interview a young Nipsey Hussle uh, way back in the day. Uh, But I also want to mention before I pass the mic real quick is our good friend Rob Kenner, came out with a biography of nipsey hustle this past year as well um the marathon don't stop and oh
1: yeah my dad was telling me that's a great book
2: it's a fantastic book and rob's done an incredible job about talking about nipsey's impact on the community and uh there's i dare say there's a lot of teaching lessons in rob's book but yo dave you should take the mic on this one
3: well i want to kind of look at the larger picture, because it's fresh on my mind. Last week, no, yesterday, Mm. one of the major people who goes into the community and works with families who have lost loved ones to intercommunal violence, had his own son killed. a Couple of months ago, similar situation happened in Minneapolis. It happened in Chicago, you know? And when you look at that, you look at Nipsey, and you start to see that people who try to spark peace in our community, again, to end the chaos, find themselves either being surveilled, jailed, you know, or curtailed in some form or fashion, mm-hmm. or even killed or suffering from the, you know, for some tragedy that has happened in the community. And, and I'm always gonna come back to this, even if we don't necessarily spell it out in the book, but I think even when you read it, when we talk about the peace treaties, and have the police beeline to disrupt it in any form or fashion from 71 to 92, you gotta remember that our peace is problematic for a bunch of people who profit off the chaos and dysfunctionality. So Nipsey, when you really look at all the things that he was doing, he was like, let's get the athletes, let's get the artists, let's all combine forces, and let's see how we can do the very things that people said we should do. Pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, do it our own self. He wasn't applying for grants. He wasn't looking for welfare. It was like, we're gonna take our own money and do that. And it might've been a Marshawn opening up a store or buying up his entire block. It might've been the Rough Riders doing similar things 3000 miles away. And then training people to run these things the way that LeBron trained his people, right? This was something that was happening in many communities with many of these artists. And every time, disruption. Also, lastly, we can't forget about Ferguson, which is a major jumping off point in the book. And six of the main people that were involved in Ferguson were killed. You see what I'm saying? So you, you can't separate this because when you, when you look at it from afar, you see like, oh, this, all this disruption And it can't just be because black people don't know how to get along. This disruption is very intentional. It happened in the 70s. It happened in the 60s. It happened at the turn of the century and it's happening now. It's camouflaged a certain way. It's made to look like something that it isn't. But I think when you just look at the patterns, you go, how the heck is this happening Mm -hmm. if it isn't by design? So that's how I look at it with, you know.
1: Yeah, no, thank you so much for speaking on his life and legacy. And I, we have a lesson at the Zen Education Project on how to teach COINTELPRO. So mm-hmm. I would inv- invite people to, to learn more about that and its impact on the Black freedom struggle, Black artists as the well. First,
3: the first thing I show in all my classes, and people can write it down, is Dart Hart Perry. His name was Ed Briggs. He had Operation Othello. He appeared in 1979 on ABC's Like It Is. And he pretty much says the FBI collects and makes it a point to understand black culture. They have a bigger collection and understanding of it than the Schomburg Museum. And when asked why, he says to know a people, you gotta know the culture. And then you use the culture against the people. He was responsible for burning down the watch writers workshop. And he said, they did it to demoralize the community. So, you know, and then when you looked at you know, when you check out all the information, it was absolutely true what he said and 100% of the impact that it has. So I think we're always aware of that. Um, and so when we can exercise excellence and exercise a certain amount of, of agency, it's done in the spirit of like, I'm smashing back. I'm smashing back on you. You're Goliath and we're David with stones. You know, hitting you in the eye, face, knees, everywhere. We're not going to lose. And that's that bravado. That's that confidence that hip hop has that when people see it, they want to redirect it. But if you're smart enough, you don't fall for the okie doke. Like, forget Bill O'Reilly. I'm looking at you, Greg Abbott, or Ron mm-hmm. Santos or Larry Elder. You know, I'm looking at these mm-hmm. folks. And that's who we're going to keep our focus on and, and make sure that, you know, the heat is on them 24-7. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how it's got to be. That's, that's what hip hop was about. That's what hip hop should continue to be. And it's up to us to remind our students. That's what it's about, that they're part of that legacy of resistance with a focus.
1: Mm, Yeah, no doubt. I got one more question before I get to a couple questions from some of the teachers here uh, for y'all, but um, I was hoping you could talk more about the industry uh, of hip hop and the trajectory from its music from beginning as rebellious youth culture now to one of the most influential cultures in the world and about how hip hop has been commercialized in many ways. And, and the industry has distorted and used the music.
2: Mm, Where to start, where to start. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things we tried to do in this particular version of the book was to outline from literally from Sugar Hill Gang putting out the first record, all the way on up through um, shutting down mixtapes—you know, the industry shutting down the mixtape trade—and um, even now into sort of the new internet economy, um, we tried to kind of illustrate the the changes that have kind of happened structurally. Um, and it's a similar kind of struggle there. It's a similar type of thing where at every point where the big money wants to turn hip hop into a monoculture, um, just representing certain kinds of voices on this entire spectrum of voices. Um, you know, folks have figured out different ways around it and tried to come back at it. And uh, so we talk a lot, for instance, about the role that uh, independent radio and independent you know, sort of journalism and media uh, play in establishing these ecosystems in these different types of cities like the reason that Atlanta's has been so strong um is because it's got a really amazing ecosystem of folks from you know shop owners to places where djs play out to the mixtape culture to uh the artistry and um part of what we're trying to get folks young folks to understand is you got to build this right you got to be able to build this yourself separate from um big money. It's not about trying to get the big contracts. It's about really building stuff up from the grassroots for
1: yourself. Right on. Excellent. David, um, do you have something you wanted to add?
3: Yeah. Can you repeat the last part of that question? I would send in the information about Dart Hard Perry for, for folks.
1: Oh yeah, no worries. Just talking about how um, hip-hop has become commercialized and how the oh. industry has used it.
3: Well, I think this culture in a business sense is about commodifying anything and everything it possibly can. And the the way around it is to know the history hip hop, I mean, hip hop is not immune to that. You know, it's, 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 it comes from a rich tradition. It comes out of the pain and struggle that people are dealing with. And somebody goes, wow. You know, somebody's talking about broken glass everywhere and talking about the hood, the response should be why is he singing about broken glass can we clean this up. The business response is he's so angry and his and his rage is so beautiful and we can make money so let's see if there's more broken glass and more people singing about it and let's encourage that so we can make a profit. Um, So that's always going to be the case, you know, sadly. Um, It is until we get into positions and we're very intentional about saying this person is doing a poem about rape. We don't want to make money about it. We want to end it. This person is doing a poem or a song about racism and the horrors of it. We don't want to hear more of this. We want to be moved to action and we want to take those steps. And so hip hop really, when it gets distorted, gets distorted when folks come along and say we want to take the freedom message out of it and say it does that it's dangerous or it's inappropriate or it's something that we shouldn't really tackle. And then, or we're offended by, that's the new thing, I'm offended by it. And in the meantime, we're gonna replace it with things that fit the ethos of the music industry, which is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And now hot takes, right? How can you be contrarian to anything that is said? And so, as they say, we're gonna have to stand on our square. We're gonna have to stand on our square as educators. We're gonna have to stand on our our square as elders to the people that we teach and show and prove. So when I go in the classroom, I'm very clear, I'm not here trying to quote young thug. You know, I'm not gonna pretend that I know every uh, lyric by Megan, even though I DJ every week and do, that's not the point here. I'm here to make sure that you have these tools to navigate a system that will bash on you and is already bashing on you because you're already in consumer mode, then you are in critical thinking mode. You know, you have to remind these folks that they're coming up at a time where taking the test and passing the test is the goal versus learning the lesson. That was no child left behind. So, you know, you come with that sort of passion, you come with that sort of energy and you're unwavering with it and people might not, hear it initially, but they feel where you're coming from. So when we're doing hip hop, people got to feel you. They got to feel that passion and they got to feel like you are serious about it. So even if you don't know the Young Thug lyrics, they know that you understand the game that's out there and that you are that it's from love and it's for a deep sense of caring that you're trying to make sure that they get out of a trap that's been set for them. So, you yeah. know, I don't expect corporations to to do that my job at this point and our job is to expose the nonsense that corporations do um you know to tell them that the iphone 12 or the 13 why is it a news story on every single uh tv station around the the country you got to show them oh this is an advertisement camouflaged as a (laughs) News story. Right. So what else are they camouflaging as news stories? And then let's start giving them an opportunity to understand media justice and media literacy. That's our job. So right. we should not be surprised that, you know, a devil is acting like a devil.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, our job <laughs> is
3: to shame the devil and, yeah. you know, and quite literally kick his ass. Excuse my language, but we got to come with that sense of boldness.
1: Right on, right on. I'll, I'll be right there with you. Uh yes. So um, I got a couple of quick questions from the audience. And then I'd love to just hear some thoughts about where this music is going today. But somebody asked, um, they, they said, I would love for Jeff and Davy D to talk about Afrobeat and reggaeton. And I would love for them to discuss how they see them moving hip hop forward and actually moving the culture. How do they allow new voices to emerge. Do you have any thoughts about that?
3: Well, as a DJ, these are very popular genres of music that we play. From the American perspective, you know, and this is coming from traveling, we've been very ignorant to stuff that comes outside of our borders. So in some regard, knowing that Folks out of Nigeria have a music form, and people are actually dancing to it. You know, to the Whiz Kids and Mr. E's and all those other guys. That's great. Um, we we we're not even going to discuss the the um, subject matter because we just want to make sure that people understand that there's more than a, there's more than the American voice <laughs> that's out there. That it's everywhere. When I hear people in a club and they're hearing, you know, if I'm playing reggaeton or some sort of, you know, hip hop artist that's speaking Spanish or French or or, you know, so uh, Swahili or any other language. That's good in a country where people say English only, even in black communities, or they only know English only. Mm-hmm. So I think those are good steps that are taken. I think where we really find the story is overseas, where you know, the folks in Canada know about the people in England, and England knows about New Zealand, and New Zealand knows about Brazil, and Brazil knows about Tanzania, where their global cipher is understood, and people not only know the music, but they understand the politics. As Americans, we're late to the game, you know, and I think, you know, the the steps that we can take, and again, as educators, is to bring those folks that coming from other countries and speak other languages and see how we can connect on common ground and allow those expressions to flourish. You know, what's the quote-unquote Latino take on hip-hop? What is the Asian take on hip-hop? How are they seeing it? Are they mimicking what is commercialized or are they bringing their own cultural aesthetics to the table and how can we dissect that and uplift it and have, you know, appreciation for all of it. So I think that's where we're at right now, learning a new language and appreciating that America, meaning all of us at this point will not be centered, you know? And I think that's a hard thing for us to get. We go overseas and demand everybody to speak English and people are looking at us like, son, I speak five languages. Why don't you speak at least another one? You know, it's mm-hmm. time for us to step up and be a part of the global the global world. <laughs>
2: And as far as a teaching tool, if you're looking for it, you know, we got a chapter on hip hop's global impact. Um, And so we dive into how Mm -hmm. hip hop is taking root in Brazil, in South Korea, um, in Senegal, and South Africa. And um, it's really, really crucial, I think, for for folks to be able to kind of understand uh, the way that Chuck D used to put it, um, our good friend Chuck D, is that the the 48 states are like a box and mm-hmm. Americans refuse to get out of the box. Yeah. Um, we, you know, we just think everything should be serving us. Um but you know if you're if you're a b-boy or b girl or you, you're just in the dance community, you know like that that thing has that ship has sailed a long time ago. Right. If you're um, in the graffiti scene, if you're if you're doing Um, music and that kind of stuff. You know, that ship has sailed a long, long time ago. So what we try to do is just to show show how uh, the continuities, um, the sort of the inspiration uh, that folks have drawn from the black freedom struggle has rooted in literally every country on every
3: continent all around the world.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
3: we try to remind people that part of the black freedom struggle was to internationalize these struggles. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why it was important. Like, I think one of the songs that I wanted to show was Queen Latifah's Ladies First. Uh, Because in that song, it was very intentional and very subversive. Her and Fab Five Freddy, based upon those meetings, those clandestine meetings, you know, said, let's do an anti-apartheid video and let's show, you know, folks in Soweto and all these other places fighting against apartheid while we're singing Ladies First. So you're going, I love the lyrics. And then when you look and go, damn, she's, toppling apartheid, right? Again, it was like, let us connect our struggles with the struggles of other folks. Um, When we were talking about Ferguson and they're connecting with their Palestinian brothers and sisters, Mm -hmm. right? Those are important moments because now when you talk to those folks, like a Tefpo or whatever, they stay in touch with each other. You know, they've been to these countries now or they have gone to the United Nations. Those are the stories that we have a responsibility to tell people. When we get into these classrooms, you know, um, that's what I tell them, and try to bring some of those folks in because they're accessible. They're not A-list artists; they're they're around doing work, so you can get Rebel Diaz, that was right down in Chile, who have a whole in-depth and very, very um, nuanced and very precise critique of hip hop and neoliberalism, right? So, you know, you 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 give the mic to them and let them break that down. And understand Mm -hmm. that they are dope MCs. Same thing with somebody like Immortal Technique and, you know, and uh, I mean, we can go on and on with folks um, that are really getting down. There's a lot of women, Ryan Nicole, uh, Mystic, uh, uh, Rhapsody, who we mentioned, Sarak is off the chain. You know, these are folks that, you know, have like deep (laughs) and rich politics that, that, that we need to you know, lay out to folks so that they understand it's okay to be intelligent, it's okay to have a politic, and it's okay to use your 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 talent for the benefit of the community.
1: Yeah thank you so much for that and that connects with what somebody said in the chat um that uh hip-hop um as hip-hop artist as a first responder and
3: Mm.
1: the the arts being a creative and spiritual resistance and healing in the fate of state sanctioned violence. I think um, so much of the artists and history that you have brought up is about that culture of resistance. So I just wanna thank you both so much for your time this evening. It's been a really rich discussion. And if you have any last um, resources that we should know about, and we have to give people time to fill out the evaluation. So I hope no one will drop off and we're gonna drop the link to the evaluation right now in the chat and we hope everyone can stay and be sure to fill that out. Um, And as you're filling that out, we can... um, have any last resources you think educators um, should should leave with. And um, yeah, so we'll do that real quick. I want to just
2: speak to the the notion of the artist as a first responder and uh, uh, artists as as healers of the community. I mean, one of the things that many of us came together to do last year was to write this piece called the Cultural New Deal. Um, and you can find it at culturalnewdeal.com. Um, but what we try to lay out is an understanding of artists, not just as entertainers. Uh, capitalism would like us to see it. Race, racial capitalism would like artists to just be reduced to entertainers. Um, we know obviously that, that artists can be teachers, that artists carry on and, uh, and, and, and distribute knowledge, bodies of knowledge. Um, and take them on from generation to generation um, through art, through song, through music. But one of the things that we're trying to do is to get people to kind of adopt the ideas of cultural equity and cultural justice. Um, Cultural justice speaks to the ways in which our cultures have been uh, marginalized, but not just that suppressed. Uh, People, we've died for our culture. Um, We've had our languages erased. Um, and uh, one of the beautiful things about uh, the Black freedom culture is it reminds us of the, the continuity, the power of continuity, um, and the power of being able to provide that point of view uh, that includes uh, a place for everybody. Um, so cultural justice is really about trying to um, reverse that erasure, that marginalization, that suppression. Um, that cultural genocide that's occurred. And I don't think enough people are, are talking these days about, about cultural injustice, uh, the cultural injustices that have been done to us. Um, so in that context, we're not just the people that are keeping communities together and safe and healing us during this time of a pandemic uh, and an economic displacement that's bigger than anything since the, the Great Depression. We're the folks that are helping hold it together yeah where artists are essential um yes. uh, culture bearers are essential um and so that's uh something that we put out in this thing called culture the cultural new deal it's cultural and take it use it in your communities um to help to transform the way that that we see artists and the way that we understand culture
1: it's not just i love it yeah. Me, I love it. Just, thank you so much. Thank you so much, y'all. We're gonna unfortunately we have to leave it there, but I greatly appreciate that resource. I hope teachers will use that, and I hope everybody could unmute and thank Jesse. Jeff can I just give uh,
3: two two things? For yeah, you. yeah. Go ahead. um First of all, to the teachers, thank you for the work that you all are doing. Y'all are front line in this, as I said in the beginning, and I think it's important that. The work that we do underscores the values that you're imparting on the youth, that it's not in sharp contradiction unless it's just you're really out there doing something that is counterproductive. Um, I think there's some good lessons to learn from a book called Kingmaker uh, by Marcus Goodlow, who talks about the role that Dr. King played in the strategy that he used to engage people with big mics, celebrities. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned and can be imparted um to the youth that you teach you know how he used celebrity culture how he engaged people to you know from having a council of elders to having talking points so that when people with big mics got in front of the the, the world they knew exactly that what they were doing i would also look at the new movie um that's on netflix i think it is blood brothers with the relationship of dr uh, malcolm x and Muhammad Ali, and I think there's some good lessons to be gleaned there. And again, what we're talking about are people who are thrust in the spotlight and people who are doing the work on the ground. How do we kind of merge those two? For us in the classroom, it's how do we take that celebrity culture and make it relevant to people that are in your classroom to understand that they can do more than just be a celebrity, but they can actually be a a kingmaker, literally, as the book said, or queenmaker or somebody who is out there making it happen that they don't necessarily have to sing and dance and, and do all these things, but they can support and, and, and facilitate you know, the politics that we need to have. And I think both those resources um, kind of lay that out and there are a lot of lessons to be learned and they, they apply directly to hip hop because those are part of the hip hop generation. Marcus Goodlow is from our, our school. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, so. thank you so much
0: David D and Jeff Chang. Thank you for joining us today. This podcast is brought to you by the Zen Education Project coordinated by Teaching for Change and Rethinking Schools.